the preface of a theologico-political treatise by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. A theologico-political treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis. Preface. Men would never be superstitious if they could govern all their circumstances by set rules, or if they were always favoured by fortune. But being frequently driven into straits where rules are useless, and being often kept fluctuating pitiably between hope and fear, by the uncertainty of fortune's greedily coveted favours, they are consequently for the most part very prone to credulity. The human mind is readily swayed this way or that in times of doubt, especially when hope and fear are struggling for the mastery, though usually it is boastful, overconfident, and vain. This is a general fact I suppose everyone knows, though few, I believe, know their own nature. No one can have lived in the world without observing that most people, when in prosperity, are so overbrimming with wisdom, however inexperienced they may be that they take every offer of advice as a personal insult, whereas in adversity they know not where to turn, but beg and pray for counsel from every passer-by. No plan is then too futile, too absurd, or too fatuous for their adoption. The most frivolous causes will raise them to hope or plunge them into despair, if anything happens during their fright which reminds them of some past good or ill they think it portends a happy or unhappy issue, and therefore, though it may have proved abortive a hundred times before, style it a lucky or unlucky omen. Anything which excites their astonishment they believe to be a portent signifying the anger of the gods or of the supreme being, and mistaking superstition for religion, account it impious not to avert the evil with prayer and sacrifice. Signs and wonders of this sort they conjure up perpetually, till one might think nature as mad as themselves, they interpret her so fantastically. Thus it is brought prominently before us that superstition's chief victims are those persons who greedily covet temporal advantages. They it is who, especially when they are in danger and cannot help themselves, are wont with prayers and womanish tears to implore help from God upbraiding reason as blind, because she cannot show a sure path to the shadows they pursue, and rejecting human wisdom as vain, but believing the phantoms of imagination, dreams, and other childish absurdities to be the very oracles of heaven, as though God had turned away from the wise, and written his decrees not in the mind of man, but in the entrails of beasts, or left them to be proclaimed by the inspiration and instinct of fools, madmen, and birds. Such is the unreason to which terror can drive mankind. Superstition, then, is engendered, preserved, and fostered by fear. If any one desire an example, let him take Alexander, who only began superstitiously to seek guidance from seers when he first learned to fear fortune in the passes of Sisus, Curtius, Volume 4. Whereas, after he had conquered Darius, he consulted prophets no more, till a second time frightened by reverses. When the Scythians were provoking a battle, the Bactrians had deserted, 
and he himself was lying sick of his wounds, he once more turned to superstition, the mockery of human wisdom, and bed Aristander, to whom he confided his credulity, inquire the issues of affairs with sacrificed victims. Very numerous examples of a like nature might be cited, clearly showing the fact that only while under the dominion of fear do men fall a prey to superstition, that all the portents ever invested with the reverence of misguided religion are mere phantoms of dejected and fearful minds, and lastly, that prophets have most power among the people and are most formidable to rulers precisely at those times when the state is in most peril. I think this is sufficiently plain to all, and will therefore say no more on the subject. The origin of superstition above given affords us a clear reason for the fact that it comes to all men naturally, though some refer its rise to a dim notion of God, universal to mankind, and also tend to show that it is no less inconsistent and variable than other mental hallucinations and emotional impulses, and further, that it can only be maintained by hope, hatred, anger, and deceit. Since it springs not from reason, but solely from the most powerful phases of emotion. Furthermore, we may readily understand how difficult it is to maintain in the same course men prone to every form of credulity. For as the mass of mankind remains always at about the same pitch of misery, it never assents long to any one remedy, but is always best pleased by a novelty which has not yet proved elusive. This element of inconsistency has been the cause of many terrible wars and revolutions. For as Curtius well says, Lib. Volume 4, Chapter 10, the mob has no ruler more potent than superstition, and is easily led, on the plea of religion, at one moment, to adore its kings as gods, and anon to execrate and abjure them as humanity's common bane. Immense pains have therefore been taken to counteract this evil, by investing religion, whether true or false, with such pomp and ceremony, that it may rise superior to every shock, and be always observed with studious reverence by the whole people. A system which has been brought to great perfection by the Turks, for they consider every controversy impious, and so clog men's minds with dogmatic formulas, that they leave no room for sound reason, not even enough to doubt with. But if in despotic statecraft, the supreme and essential mystery be to hoodwink the subjects, and to mask the fear which keeps them down with a specious garb of religion so that men may fight as bravely for slavery as for safety and count it not shame but highest honour to risk their blood and their lives for the vainglory of a tyrant yet in a free state no more mischievous expedient could be planned or attempted wholly repugnant to the general freedom are such devices as enthralling men's minds with the prejudices forcing their judgment or employing any of the weapons of quasi-religious sedition. Indeed, such seditions only spring up when law enters the domain of speculative thought, and opinions are put on trial and condemned on the same footing as crimes, while those who defend and follow them are sacrificed, not to public safety, but to their opponents' hatred and cruelty. If deeds only could be made the grounds of criminal charges, and words were always allowed to pass free, such seditions would be divested of every semblance of justification, and would be separated from mere controversies by a hard and fast line. Now, seeing that we have the rare happiness of living in a republic, where everyone's judgment is free and unshackled, 
where each may worship God as his conscience dictates, and where freedom is esteemed before all things dear and precious, I have believed that I should be undertaking no ungrateful or unprofitable task, in demonstrating that not only can such freedom be granted without prejudice to the public peace, but also that without such freedom piety cannot flourish, nor the public peace be secure. Such is the chief conclusion I seek to establish in this treatise. But in order to reach it, I must first point out the misconceptions which, like scars of our former bondage, still disfigure our notion of religion, and must expose the false views about the civil authority which may have most impudently advocated, endeavouring to turn the mind of the people, still prone to heathen superstition, away from its legitimate rulers, and so bring us again into slavery. As to the order of my treatise, I will speak presently, but first I will recount the causes which led me to write. I have often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such a rancorous animosity, and display toward one another such bitter hatred, that this, rather than the virtues they claim, is the readiest criterion of their faith. Matters have long since come to such a pass that one can only pronounce a man Christian, Turk, Jew, or heathen by his general appearance and attire, by his frequenting this or that place of worship, or employing the phraseology of a particular sect, as for manner of life, it is in all cases the same. Inquiry into the cause of this anomaly leads me unhesitatingly to ascribe it to the fact that the ministries of the church are regarded by the masses merely as dignities, her offices as posts of emolument, in short, popular religion may be summed up as respect for ecclesiastics. The spread of this misconception inflamed every worthless fellow with an intense desire to enter holy orders, and thus the love of diffusing God's religion degenerated into sordid avarice and ambition. Every church became a theatre, where orators instead of church teachers harangued, caring not to instruct the people, but striving to attract admiration, to bring opponents to public scorn, and to preach only novelties and paradoxes, such as would tickle the ears of their congregation. This state of things necessarily stirred up an amount of controversy, envy, and hatred, which no lapse of time could appease, so that we can scarcely wonder that of the old religion nothing survives but its outward forms, even these in the mouth of the multitude seem rather adulation than adoration of the deity, and that faith has become a mere compound of credulity and prejudices, I, prejudices too, which degrade man from rational being to beast, which completely stifle the power of judgment between true and false, which seem in fact carefully fostered for the purpose of extinguishing the last spark of reason. Piety, great God, and religion are becoming a tissue of ridiculous mysteries, men who flatly despise reason, who reject and turn away from understanding as naturally corrupt, these, I say, these of all men are thought, O oh, lie most horrible, to possess light from on high. Verily, if they had but one spark of light from on high, they would not insolently rave, but would learn to worship God more wisely, and would be as marked among their fellows for mercy as they now are for malice. If they were concerned for their opponents' souls, instead of for their own reputations, they would no longer fiercely persecute, but rather be filled with pity and compassion. Furthermore, if any divine light were in them, it would appear from their doctrine. 
I grant that they are never tired of professing their wonder at the profound mysteries of Holy Writ. Still I cannot discover that they teach anything but speculations of Platonists and Aristotelians, to which, in order to save their credit for Christianity, they have made Holy Writ conform. Not content to rave with the Greeks themselves, they want to make the prophets rave also, showing conclusively that never even in sleep have they caught a glimpse of Scripture's divine nature. The very vehemence of their admiration for the mysteries plainly attests that their belief in the Bible is a formal assent rather than a living faith, and the fact is made still more apparent by their laying down beforehand as a foundation for the study and true interpretation of Scripture, the principle that it is in every passage true and divine. Such a doctrine should be reached only after strict scrutiny and thorough comprehension of the sacred books, which would teach it much better, for they stand in need of no human fictions, and not be set up on the threshold, as it were, of inquiry. As I ponder over the facts that the light of reason is not only despised, but by many even execrated as a source of impiety, that human commentaries are accepted as divine records, and that credulity is extolled as faith. As I mark the fierce controversies of philosophers raging in church and state, the source of bitter hatred and dissension, the ready instruments of sedition and other ills innumerable, I determine to examine the Bible afresh in a careful, impartial and unfettered spirit, making no assumptions concerning it, and attributing to it no doctrines which I do not find clearly therein set down. With these precautions I constructed a method of scriptural interpretation, and thus equipped proceeded to inquire, what is prophecy? In what sense did God reveal himself to the prophets, and why were these particular men chosen by him? Was it on account of the sublimity of their thoughts about the deity and nature, or was it solely on account of their piety? These questions being answered, I was easily able to conclude that the authority of the prophets has weight only in matters of morality, and that their speculative doctrines affect us little. Next I inquired why the Hebrews were called God's chosen people, and discovering that it was only because God had chosen for them a certain strip of territory where they might live peaceably and at ease, I learnt that the law revealed by God to Moses was merely the law of the individual Hebrew state therefore that it was binding on none but Hebrews, and not even on Hebrews after the downfall of their nation. Further, in order to ascertain whether it could be concluded from Scripture that the human understanding is naturally corrupt, I inquired whether the universal religion, the divine law revealed through the prophets and apostles to the whole human race, differs from that which is taught by the light of natural reason, whether miracles can take place in violation of the laws of nature, and if so, whether they imply the existence of God more surely and clearly than events, which we understand plainly and distinctly through their immediate natural causes. Now, as in the whole course of my investigation, I found nothing taught expressly by Scripture, which does not agree with our understanding, or which is repugnant thereto, and as I saw that the prophets taught nothing, which is not very simple and easily to be grasped by all, and further, that they clothed their teaching in a style, and confirmed it with the reasons which would most deeply move the mind of the masses to devotion towards God, I became thoroughly convinced that the Bible leaves reason absolutely free, that it has nothing in common with philosophy, in fact, that revelation and philosophy stand on totally different footings. 
In order to set forth this categorically and exhaust the whole question, I point out the way in which the Bible should be interpreted, and show that all knowledge of scriptural questions should be sought from it alone, and not from the objects of ordinary knowledge. Thence I pass on to indicate the false notions which have arisen from the fact that the multitude, ever prone to superstition, and caring more for the shreds of antiquity than for eternal truths, pays homage to the books of the Bible rather than the Word of God. I show that the Word of God has not been revealed as a certain number of books, but was displayed to the prophets as a simple idea of the divine mind, namely, obedience to God in singleness of heart, and in the practice of justice and charity. And I further point out that this doctrine is set forth in Scripture in accordance with the opinions and understandings of those among whom the apostles and prophets preached, to the end that men might receive it willingly and with their whole heart. Having thus laid bare the basis of belief, I draw the conclusion that revelation has obedience for its sole object, and therefore in purpose, no less than in foundation and method, stands entirely aloof from ordinary knowledge. Each has its separate province, neither can be called the handmaid of the other. Furthermore, as men's habits of mind differ, so that some readily embrace one form of faith, some another, for what moves one to pray may move another only to scoff. I conclude, in accordance with what has gone before, that every one should be free to choose for himself the foundations of his creed, and that faith should be judged only by its fruits. Each would then obey God freely with his whole heart, while nothing would be publicly honoured save justice and charity. Having thus drawn attention to the liberty conceded to every one by the revealed law of God, I pass on to another part of my subject and prove that this same liberty can and should be accorded with safety to the state and the magisterial authority, in fact, that it cannot be withheld without great danger to peace and detriment to the community. In order to establish my point, I start from the natural rights of the individual, which are coextensive with his desires and power, and from the fact that no one is bound to live as another pleases but is the guardian of his own liberty. I show that these rights can only be transferred to those whom we depute to defend us, who acquire with the duties of defence the power of ordering our lives, and thence I infer that rulers possess rights only limited by their power, that they are the sole guardians of justice and liberty, and that their subjects should act in all things as they dictate. Nevertheless, since no one can so utterly abdicate his own power of self-defence, as to cease to be a man, I conclude that no one can be deprived of his natural rights absolutely, but that subjects, either by tacit agreement or by social contract, retain a certain number which cannot be taken from them without great danger to the state. From these considerations I pass on to the Hebrew state, which I describe at some length in order to trace the manner in which religion acquired the force of law, and to touch on other noteworthy points. I then prove that the holders of sovereign power are the depositaries and interpreters of religious no less than of civil ordinances, and that they alone have the right to decide what is just or unjust, pious or impious. Lastly, I conclude by showing that they retain this right and secure safety to their state by allowing every man to think what he likes and says what he thinks. Such a philosophical reader are the questions I submit to your notice, counting on your approval, for the subject matter of the whole book, and of the several chapters, is important and profitable. I would say more, 
but I do not want my preface to extend to a volume, especially as I know what its leading propositions are to philosophers, but commonplaces. To the rest of mankind I care not to commend my treatise, for I cannot expect that it contains anything to please them. I know how deeply rooted are the prejudices embraced under the name of religion. I am aware that in the mind of the masses, superstition is no less deeply rooted than fear. I recognize that their constancy is mere obstinacy, and that they are led to praise or blame by impulse rather than reason. Therefore the multitude, and those of like passions with the multitude, I ask not to read my book. Nay, I would rather that they would utterly neglect it, than that they should misinterpret it after they won't. They would gain no good themselves, and might prove a stumbling block to others, whose philosophy is hampered by the belief that reason is a mere handmaid to theology, and whom I seek in this work especially to benefit. But as there will be many who have neither the leisure nor perhaps the inclination to read through all I have written, I feel bound here, as at the end of my treatise, to declare that I have written nothing which I do not most willingly submit to the examination and judgment of my country's rulers, and that I am ready to retract anything which they shall decide to be repugnant to the laws or prejudicial to the public good. I know that I am a man, and as a man liable to error, but against error I have taken scrupulous care, and striven to keep an entire accordance with the laws of my country, with loyalty and with morality. End of the preface of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama